Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. I had it on mute there, so we'll start over. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, I, I, January 1st, I went part-time, and so I've been uh, home and had the chance to begin uh, thinking about how I want to create more audio going forward. And um, it's given me the chance to go back over all of the old content, not necessarily listening to episodes, which I haven't done, but to just see the topics that I've covered since I started doing the podcast back in 2012. And um, what I think I wanted to do, and I started it last week when I did the episode on the Holy Ghost, is I wanted to go through each major topic in Mormonism and share with you, the viewer and listener, how I came to understand that issue, how I was taught within Mormonism about that issue. And as I shifted and changed, as I uh, moved and grew, what parts of those issues affected me and um, where I come out at the other side of it. And where I am today on each of these. And I think, I think you know, based on the episode last week we did on the Holy Ghost, I think this week's episode uh, will be just as interesting, if not more. And today I want to talk about the first vision. And so I got to go back in time. You know, I'm, I'm 17 years old. I'm a senior in high school when I encounter Mormonism. I'm a dating uh, my future wife. Uh, we had just started dating. Her dad's getting me interested in church. I go to church. I shared that experience last week in the episode about the Holy Ghost. And uh, the missionaries begin to come over and to teach me. And it was uh, Elder Parker and Elder Walters. And I'll just note here, Elder Walters, Josh Walters, was from California. And um, he meant a lot to me in lots of ways as he was one of the missionaries who taught me. And we just really connected. He was, it's, it seemed as though he was somebody who didn't keep the rules before he went on a mission and he had some, maybe some Mormon repenting to do, but in reality was just being a normal teenage kid. And um, if anybody knows Josh Walters from California, who would have served a mission around 1996 in the Cleveland, Ohio mission, I've tried several times to find him and have had no luck and would love to say hi to him and uh, and uh, catch up, but have been unable to locate him. Most of the other missionaries that I grew attached to, I've been able to do, been able to to reach out to and find and, and have a connection with. Um, the first vision, when the missionaries were teaching me, when Elder Walters and Elder Parker were teaching me the first vision, it was, you know, I'm 17 and I felt a little bit like Joseph Smith in that I was looking for answers. Now, was I really? I, I Really, I wasn't. I, at 17, before I encountered Mormonism, I was happy hanging out with my friends. I was happy uh, doing drugs, to be honest. I was happy drinking. I was happy with the life that I uh, had. And Mormonism has this way of convincing you that you are like the story. When the scriptures say, liken Nephi unto yourself, there's a tendency inside Mormonism for all of us to do that very thing, to liken 
the scriptures unto ourself. And uh, sorry, I got a little bit of a flickering light. So I'm sorry if that kind of bothers you, but I think hopefully it's going to stop. So um, as I, as I learned the first vision and I saw myself in the story, I very much connected with Joseph Smith. He's a 14 year old boy. I'm a 17 year old boy. And uh, this questioning kind of curiosity, I, I always had that. I was always a reader. I always wanted to know things. I always was interested in learning things. And from the moment I joined Mormonism, it becomes obvious that I am a learner, not a lazy learner, but a real learner. And, uh, and so as I, as I hear that story, I mean, I didn't go on a mission. I didn't, I didn't do that. But what I did do is I took a serious interest in helping the missionary spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the restoration, the, the true and living church and the only church upon the earth with which the Lord was well pleased. And I wanted to be a help to the, to the missionaries. So I went out with them all the time and I made an effort to, to know those discussions. So at the time it was those six pamphlets, those six discussions. And the first one, you know, it starts off with most of us believe in a Supreme being. And though we know him by different names, but there was a part in the first vision where, uh, there's a story told from Joseph Smith's history, and I I busted my butt to memorize it because the missionaries had to memorize it, and I wanted to be able to go out with the missionaries and share that. And so it goes like, um, during this time of great excitement, my mind was called up to serious reflection and great uneasiness. Uh, but though my feelings were deep and often poignant, Still, I kept myself aloof from the various, or sorry, aloof from all of these parties. Though I attended... Um, there are several meetings as often as occasion would permit. In process of time, my mind became somewhat partial to the Methodist sect, and I felt some desire to be united with them. Um, but so great was the confusion and strife among the different denominations that it was impossible for a person as young as I and so unacquainted with men and things to come to any conclusion who was right and who was wrong. And so... Um, I worked my butt off to memorize that. And I had to look at my paper in two little spots there to make sure I got the right word. And I know maybe I, maybe I got a word or two wrong, but I worked my ass off to memorize that because the Joseph Smith story was important to me. I connected with it deeply. And in that, in that connecting with it, I saw myself, um, not only in that story, but my testimony of Mormonism really has that being one of those fundamental pieces. And Mormonism wants you to have that. Mormonism wants you. Somebody asked if I remember if anybody remembers the flannel board discussions. I've seen those, but they weren't part of my missionary discussions. Some some older person in our ward had an old set of that and uh, brought them in for kind of a show and tell once, but I'm too young or at least joined the church too late in date to remember those being utilized. They weren't part of my experience. Mormonism wants you to put the first vision in there and it wants you to liken yourself to Joseph and it wants your testimony to be deeply connected to that founding event, at least it used to. I don't know about any more. And uh, 
when I joined the church, I only knew about the 1838 account because that's the only account they wanted us to know about. There was no conversation at all, zero, in any of the correlated curriculum, the dominant narrative, as Richard Bushman put it. There wasn't a single drop of the 1832 account. And then there's the 1835 account. And the only thing that I ever got that I knew that account existed, for instance, let me go back. When I'm 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, it is clear that in all the correlated curriculum, the only thing you have is the 1838 slash Wentworth letter first vision account. It's the official account. It's where Joseph goes into the grove. Um, there's this religious excitement. Um, he reads James 1.5. He's He had never wrestled with which church is true. He goes into the grove. He asks God. Jesus and God shows up. God says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And Jesus proceeds to tell Joseph that if he will be patient, he'll be an instrument in the Lord's hands. And, and that's the only account they wanted us to know. The only time I heard anything about the 1835 account is when this really fascinating story is being told about Joshua, the Jewish minister, who shows up uh, to visit the Mormons, and Joseph Smith takes him in, and I don't remember who the scribe is for that. If somebody knows that, they can put that in the comments, and I'll try to note it and say it. But whoever the scribe is, they're writing down the account, and it's just this moment where everyone collectively goes, hey, there's this crazy guy named Joshua, the Jewish minister, who's also not completely on the up and up. He goes under multiple aliases, and he is committing some level of, uh, I think, crime as he's moving around from place to place. I think maybe he had a family back where he came from, and he had kind of abandoned them. And so this 1835 account has... Every time I heard it, I, I never heard it through direct channels, as far as I remember. And it was always just from the facet of, hey, Joseph Smith met this crazy Joshua, the Jewish minister. And that's the, let me tell you that story about this crazy guy. And in the midst of it, Joseph Smith is sharing a first vision account. But the first vision account itself, it, it really wasn't discussed. And uh, so I was... Completely, even as a as an early member, one who was I was reading and thinking about Mormonism, and as I was reading everything I can get my hands on, um, I I remained almost entirely oblivious. I'm going to turn off this light because it is blinking. Oop, it's not that one. Maybe it's the other one. Oh, give me just a second here. I'm there. It was a light bulb above me. Um, not knowing those accounts, I, I had this idea in my head that the only first vision account, the only real account of the first vision is the 1838 account. It never, it never occurs to me to wonder if it had been shared in other places and described differently. I never, I never thought to even think about it that way. And the church was more than happy to articulate to me a position that sounds like the 1838 account is the only account. And I don't know it at the time, 
But there are other accounts. The church is in possession of them. For many years, they hid them. And we'll go into that here in just a moment. But I was left to assume, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm damn tired of being blamed for the assumptions I made when the correlated curriculum and the dominant narrative leave so much context out as to leave me to think of it that way. And so um, it's not until years later into Mormonism that I begin to grasp that there are other experiences around the first vision that I should understand, dive into, and try to grapple with the context of. And so um, the, the idea that prior to the internet, because I've really come into Mormonism just as the internet is really coming online and people are beginning to use it in all of these various ways. Uh, the internet was really a simple thing back in 1995 and 1996, but as time, you know, within a few years, the internet becomes a plethora of information around any topic you want, and Mormonism certainly had its fair share. And so the idea that they had these other First Vision accounts and the idea that they taught me prior to the internet being really up and running, knowing that Mormonism really wanted to limit what I knew about the First Vision. It wanted to limit, it, it wanted to prevent me from even knowing that there were other things to read about and to think about in regards to the first vision. And so I thought it was really, you know, now as I'm looking back and, and at some point, maybe 10 years ago, I just sensed there's a level of dishonesty in telling the story. You tell the story in its very best light, Mormonism that is, tell the story in its very best light and leave out all of the context and messiness, all of the negative information so that a believing active member of the church who doesn't go do some serious digging outside of the correlated curriculum is left to left to only assume what they're told directly. And uh, they liked it that way. They loved it that way. Hell, if the internet hadn't happened, they would have absolutely been uh, hugely in favor of keeping the narrative much in line with the Joseph Fielding Smith, Bruce R. McConkie sort of Mormonism. And it would have taken a, a 300 years without the internet to accomplish what has happened in the last 15 years, 20 years with it. And uh, the internet happens and the church doesn't control it. And they're doing their best to distance members from it. You get those talks that say, you know, don't trust Google, don't trust untrustworthy sources, which is any source but the information in the church, when you and I both know that the church has been the absolute worst at being honest about its narrative and its history. And hence, it when it says don't trust untrustworthy sources, it really should be pointing a finger at itself. But, but it doesn't do that. It conveys to believing members that it's the trustworthy source and that anything that gives you discomfort or cognitive dissonance 
anything that feels like it contains the spirit of contention um, has you feeling safe to dismiss it. And, uh, and so they, so there's this idea that um, the first vision is kind of this very limited thing, but as the internet comes online, the church is beginning to have to deal with post-Mormons or nuanced and doubting Mormons collectively getting together and promoting uh, venues and platforms that begin to show the deeper context uh, of Mormonism, including events like the First Vision. And it's interesting because Mormonism is different than a lot of other religions in that every one of its truth claims, for the most part, hinges deeply on a historical event happening the way the founder and early leaders said it happened. And what we find now as we dig into Mormonism over time is that I would argue that essentially every single truth claim hinges on historical events and every one of those historical events are problematic. They didn't happen the way the church told you. And the way that they did happen seems to be much more in line with the critics' conclusion than the church's. And, uh, and you can see here, I put this up before, Matthew says, I read all of the church manuals to include Institute for Church Doctrine Study. By the way, Matthew, I did the same thing. Early on in my time in the church, I joined as an older teenager. I don't go on a mission. I'm not going to a church school. But every time I go into Deseret Book um, or from the church distribution center, I would order every single Institute manual. Um I'm trying to think offhand where they are that I could even point a camera at them. Oh, yeah. Here, let's do this. I'll see if I can get this to come over. So you can kind of see up there on the top is all of those Institute manuals. And it's the New Testament. It's the Old Testament. Sorry, I'm making all of you dizzy. It's the New Testament. It's the Old Testament. It's uh, the Book of Mormon. It's the marriage manual. It's all of them. And I read them. I, I opened them up and started at page one and read them. I wanted to know every damn thing about this faith. And, uh, and those are college and institute uh, manuals, and yet they don't cover the messiness at all. Mormonism made a living out of telling you a very narrow, embellished, falsifiable version of Mormon history, and we all bought it, hook, line, and sinker. And so thank, thank God that the internet came along, and it did. And when it did, the church, as it's confronting this info, eventually gets to the point where it is in recent years, 2013, 14, 15, 16, it created uh, gospel topic essays. And these essays made some noise. Because for the first time, Mormonism in its dominant narrative, in its correlated curriculum, is acknowledging that things don't add up. And uh, somebody said they missed the, the big red door from Family Pond. But I'm excited to be home and uh, recording from the comfort of my own office. So, And so when they released the Gospel Topic essay, we... 
all collectively could go read about each of these messy issues, at least the, 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 the main ones. And there's still several main ones that aren't in essays yet. And probably maybe never will be. I think the brethren have realized that they are deeply uncomfortable being honest. So they are as honest and transparent as they know how to be. And unfortunately that's not very much. And the gospel topic essay on the first vision at least acknowledges there are four primary first vision accounts. It at least acknowledges on some level the incongruities, but it is, as you well know, these gospel topic essays aren't really about putting the information out in a balanced way. They're about inoculating people who have problems and dismissing the the real criticisms and logical questions by creating some type of ambiguous space where we're not allowed to have our brains go to the most reasonable, rational conclusion, but instead must always give the benefit of the doubt to the church on, on every issue, no matter which angle they play that issue. And, uh, and as Matthew's pointing out, yes, I still have those manuals and none of the essays info is there. No. At a college level or institute level class, the church did not teach its college level students the messiness of its own faith. Why? Because it's not helpful. It it doesn't contribute to people staying and it doesn't give, it doesn't create growth and strength within the church. Even if people stayed with a nuanced faith, they're no longer going to tolerate absolute authority and they're not going to follow and obey when they feel something tugging at their conscience. And so in that gospel topic essay, you learn the accounts, you learn the basics, but you don't really get the gist of it. And and the trouble is with Mormonism is it doesn't know how to keep its mouth shut. And so we run into these moments, um, these moments where the leaders of the church decide that they're going to open their mouth and say things about these messy issues, but they often do so to the younger generation, the kids, and they do so in a way that really limits, like they control the questions. If they get a question that they couldn't control and they don't like it, they just change the question like, or like elder Bednar did. And, um, they, they don't really want to answer the questions. Of course, we've got uh, this one. I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those, I think, would be the ones we avoid. Yeah, and that's the, that's the history of how they do it, is they avoid the questions. And so that soundbite came from this broadcast, but it wasn't what I wanted to show you today. I wanted to show you this section where they talk about the first vision and we'll stop a few times along the way, and uh, and we can talk about these, um, and and see what happens. Let me, um, hopefully, if somebody can quickly just let me know that the sound is playing on this video when I hit play, and uh, otherwise I'll go back to it. But forty six thirty five is the timestamp. Let me um, see here. Let's try that. Here we go.
first off, it is true. Again, as others are stating in the comments, and is somebody saying there is no sound? So if there's not, I can I can pull it back up here in a moment. So please keep commenting. If someone did get sound, let me know. Um, they did hide it. You you went to a church college level class on the history of the church. You went to a, a college level class on the history of the church and uh, they did hide it. Let me back up here. I'm going to, I'm going to pull the screen off and I apologize guys. I'll put this back up here real quick and I'll include the sound. My fear is always that uh, if I put the sound on the screen, it's also going to be uh, it's going to show up duplicate through my audio system as well as. So let me back up just a touch here. Thing that we that we wish to encourage. It comes right after this. And and some uh, some are uh, saying that the church has been hiding the fact that there is more than one version of the of the first vision, which is uh, just a. a, a not true. It is true. It is true. I, I didn't get it in the gospel principles class. I didn't get it in gospel doctrine class. I didn't get it in uh, the, the college kids at BYU didn't get it. The kids going to institute didn't get it from the manuals. Um, my home teacher didn't tell me it, nor how would he know? And even if a rogue member of the church happens to do enough study that they know there's another first vision account and they share it in a class doesn't mean that the institution shared it. And, and so there's, there's no correlated curriculum where that conversation is taking place. It's not in doctrines of salvation by Joseph Fielding Smith. It's not in Mormon doctrine by Bruce R. McConkie. It's not in the Articles of Faith by James E. Talmadge. It's not anywhere. So now he's going to go ahead and tell you, though, where they did share it so that he gets to be off the hook for, for us believing it wasn't taught. The idea now is that um, he's going to give this vague reference of where you can find it, and even that is got tons of problems as we'll see here in just a moment. The facts are we don't study, we don't go back and search what has been said. Whose fault did he just put it on? He put it on your fault. It's your fault. The, the problem is you guys aren't studying, you're not going back, you're not looking at things. You're not you're not doing your part. You are always to blame. It always, the buck always stops with you. It never stops with them. And even when they articulate a phrase that is intended to own that they take some blame, they will word it in ways as to say some members, meaning mostly leaders, some members, and then they'll go off on their tangent. And so here he was blaming you. You're the lazy learner. Problem is you didn't study enough. And that bullshit gets old. I'm, I'm tired. I, I, was, I was at the top 1% of people who were devouring 
Mormon history. I'm in the I'm in the top percent of people who are looking and digging and finding all this stuff. And it was difficult for me to find. On the subject, for example, Dr. James B. Allen of the BYU in 1970, he, he, he produced a, an article for the church magazines explaining all about the different versions of the first vision. How long ago was that article? 1970. That was back in 1970. So been hiding that for a long time. Yeah. The trouble is they're actually still hiding it. And let me show you what I mean. They say it as if it's easy to find, right? Like if you're going to claim, if you're going to claim that, um, let me find the reference here. If you're going to claim that people didn't study enough and that it was in there the whole time, then it needs to be easily accessible at the very minimum to the average member of the church. So when I go into the new era, I get to put before 2021, I can click that button, hit new era, and then they come up. Look at this. So here's the new era for 2020. Now, what year did they say that was? They said that was 1970. 1970. Okay, well, I want to read this James Allen article. So I'm going to scroll down to 1970. Here we go. Uh, oh, shit. The first time I can get something is 1971. Look at this. We are in a church that is led by prophets, seers, and revelators. But the church is adamant that the furthest back we get to go is 1971, while telling us that an article in 1970 gave us the information if we just studied enough. If we just studied enough, we would know these things. I don't even know, as an average member of the church, I wouldn't even know how to go find 1970 stuff, 1969, 1968, 1964. How about 1923? How about 1911? Like, how can I get all that? 1971, that is modern. That's pretty damn recent. I was born in 78. That's pretty damn recent. This church isn't, um, this church isn't uh, being honest with you and I about who's responsible for why we don't know things. If they claim we should have known it and it's in a talk from 1970, well, damn it, at the very least, make sure I have access to that talk. I should. I should be able to have access to it. And I don't. I had to go looking for it. It was really difficult to find, by the way. The links that I found for it were dead. It was actually quite difficult to find. So now I'll go back here to the video and we'll play a few more minutes of what Elder Ballard is saying. <laughs> but, but it... See, they're all laughing because none of them have taken the damn opportunity either and found that there isn't this information from 1970 available. So they're all chuckling and giggling like, ha, 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 my mom and dad are so out of it. They can't find this kind of stuff. Um, and the reality is that you couldn't find it because it's not there. You have to go finding it in some other place besides the church's own website. By the way, I think this is also a ridiculous thing. The church has all of its old information prior to 1971 
off of its website. I can't go find all of those old general conference talks. They don't let me do a keyword search and, and locate those talks or those articles. And so um, blaming you and me for a talk that isn't even on their website seems dishonest and deceptive. And I'm tired of these old men bad-mouthing us collectively when, when it's not our fault. It just wasn't. Here's the rest of that. It's this, it's this, this, this idea that the church is hiding something, that, which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time, there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. So there's that. And, and it would take me, I couldn't in 30 episodes cover the amount of dishonesty that has come out of church leaders. I mean, Elder Holland, double-digit state creation, his conversation with the BBC guy, uh, about uh, the book of Abraham and Mitt Romney having made uh, temple uh, oaths to to kill himself, um, uh, President Nelson and his flight of death, along with three or four other stories that RFM and I have covered on uh, on his dishonesty around those stories. Uh, Paul H. Dunn, uh, the obfuscation of every messy issue that's in the church. I mean, it could go on and on. I couldn't in 30 episodes cover the amount of times these guys have hidden things and lied about it. And, and what you run into is uh, this 1970 article. So I'm going to go back here. Page eight uh, was where I was kind of looking to get started. Um, let me zoom out a little bit. So there it is. There's the new era from April 1970. And if we go to uh, page four, we get this article, Eight Contemporary Accounts of Joseph Smith's First Vision. By the way, it's in the new era, which is the youth magazine. The church didn't publish this to the adults. Now, how many adults do you know who, as part of their standard gospel study, also read the youth magazines? Like, it's absurd to expect that people would have read this. And especially when you present this information to kids and you're like, okay, we covered it. It's done. Got it. And then you go into the actual article itself and, and it's not, uh, it doesn't really have the context. And so you can, oops, let me go back here. So you can see um, they start off here. I'll just give you the beginning here. In 1965, a graduate student, by the way, that's Paul Chessman. 1965, a graduate student at Brigham Young University presented a gentle surprise to Mormon scholars. Not fair. The reality was that Joseph Fielding Smith or someone under his direction almost certainly cut the 1832 account of the first vision out of Joseph Smith's uh, journal letter book and hid it away in the church history department vault um, for about 40 years. Uh, Joseph Fielding Smith was called as church historian in 1921, sometime between about 1921 and 1940. That first vision account was cut out. 
rumors began to circulate that there was a peculiar First Vision account because Joseph Fielding Smith had showed it to a few people that he trusted. And one of those people ended up either talking to somebody who talked to Gerald and Sandra Tanner, or they talked directly to Gerald and Sandra Tanner themselves. So that the Tanners began to circulate uh, the information that there was a First Vision account, that it was peculiar, that it was being hidden away by the church. And all of those things, we can't assign motives. If I'm honest, I'm, I'm much more polemic than RFM. We can't assign motives. If we're going to stick deeply to the facts, the facts are that the thing was cut out, it was put into the church vault, and it was kept there for decades. And only in 19, uh, early 1960s, when the rumor circulates that this First Vision account exists, does Joseph Fielding Smith or somebody under his direction go into the vault, take that 1832 account, tape it back into the letter book, and then privately go to Paul Chessman and ask him to go ahead and do his master's thesis on it so that it is revealed by the church rather than by the critics as most members come to understand this issue. And they're not telling you that in this story. They don't want you to know the context. They don't want you to know it was cut out of the letter book. That's, those are anytime the details aren't faith promoting and they can't be twisted into a faith promoting narrative. This is what Mormonism does. It, it just, it just muddies the waters. It just obfuscates the data. It just keeps you from seeing the forest from the trees. And so um, to put one article in a, LDS Kids Magazine in 1970 that's not accessible on the church site today doesn't offer the context that it deserves, and then you blame all of us for not knowing about it is absolutely ridiculous. And anybody who would justify such a thing is already started off with their conclusion like Carrie Molstein and simply needs the church to be true and isn't going to sit with what it means to deceive people and to keep people from making informed decisions. The church is really big on agency, but not really. In order to really have agency, you deserve to be informed. You deserve to have all the data and the details and to be able to um, make educated, informed decisions on what you're going to do with your time, talents, and resources. So um, he included it in his master's thesis, heretofore unknown description of Joseph Smith's first vision. What? Heretofore unknown. No, 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 it wasn't. The church cut it out and placed it in the historian's vault. What else was there? The 1835 account was somewhere with other things away from the public, because it they'll, they'll mention it being revealed here shortly after. Uh, the LDS Searstone, it's stored away. Nobody's given you that. There's still things stored away. William Clayton's diary, there's other things that uh, the Council of 50 Minutes just finally got released. If anybody wants to go actually read that, it's quite damning. The amount of violence and secrecy that early Mormon leadership had. And so you have here, uh, heretofore unknown, uh, it absolutely bewilders me how the church could say such a thing when they were the ones who kept it unknown. What made the new discovery significant 
was the fact that most writers had supposed that the manuscript history of Joseph Smith formally began in 1838. Um, the church knew otherwise. Its historians knew otherwise. Its church historian, an official general authority position held by Joseph Fielding Smith, who was also a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, and eventually becomes the president of the church. Uh, I'll read a couple of the comments here. James B. says, how many members know about the 1949 First Presidency Statement about the doctrine behind the priesthood ban? Most don't. I mean, that's, it, it, again, it's every messy issue within the church. Matthew says it provides plausible deniability. Yeah, it's always about plausible deniability. It's not about honesty. And at this point, all of the nuanced Mormons, Stephen Harper and, and Mark Ashurst McGee, guys at the historian's office, you're you're part of the problem because you also don't want to be seen as holding your church accountable. You don't want to be seen as saying, yeah, we didn't, we didn't do that good. And let me name the times we didn't do that good. Let me be specific. Let me give you the real context. And so all of the nuanced uh, folks, Terrell Givens and Patrick Mason, who I like, they're, they're part of the fraud. They're part of the problem. Um, a couple other comments here. If this important first vision account is outside the correlated curriculum, outside of the correlated material that is provided for church study, it does not count as taught information that is readily available. Amen. Absolutely. Um, if we go further on down here, um, the history of Joseph Smith formally began in 1838. Uh, Paul Chessman's find, it wasn't his find, by the way, Joseph Fielding Smith gave it to him and he was asked to write on it. If, uh, if Paul's still out there and alive, if Paul wants to come forward and tell this story, I would love it. But that account could not have been discovered five years earlier. It wasn't available to be discovered. Paul Chessman discovered it because Joseph Fielding Smith made it discoverable. Um. Paul Chessman's find demonstrated that the story of the first vision had been dictated as early as 1831-1832. By the way, if you want to know where to read all this information, what you're going to look for is Stan Larson and First Vision. If you just type those in, you'll end up with a document that uh, hopefully this will open up. We'll see if this does. PDF article and... There it is. Stan Larson's Another Look at Joseph Smith's First Vision. And you can get the entire story of Paul Chessman, uh, Joseph Fielding Smith, the uh, Gerald and Sandra Tanner at Lighthouse Ministry, uh, how the church incorporated the First Vision. I mean, they didn't even teach it in the missionary lessons until the 1900s. And it might be as late as like 1930-ish, I think is when the missionary discussions eventually started talking about the first vision. And I could be wrong. It might even be as late as the 1960s. And so the first vision just never was really a big part of all of this uh, early Mormonism. So back to the article, recently both Mormons and non-Mormon historians have shown new interest in Joseph Smith's testimony. Why? Because we all thought the 1838 account was the only account and then in the 1960s, Joseph Fielding Smith, out of embarrassment, tapes back in. And you can go, by the way, to the Joseph Smith Papers Project. You can pick 
uh, pull up the 1832 First Vision account, which I think you can actually get from the Gospel Topic essay, you can look at the actual document and you can see where it was cut out and taped back in. Um, so if any of this sounds like I'm not telling you the truth, uh, my suggestion is go check down these sources that I'm pointing you towards. Recently, both Mormon and non-Mormon historians have shown interest in Joseph Smith's testimony because it became relevant because Joseph Fielding Smith, out of his embarrassment, pulled the 1832 account out, put it back, and brought it to light. Um not long after the 1831-1832 narrative was discovered, a second version that also predated the manuscript history was brought to light. This is the 1835 account with the interaction with Joshua, the Jewish minister. And just FYI, that account was written in 1835, and it also was with the church privately uh, until a later point in the 60s after 1965, I think it was 1967, where the 1835 account was released so that all of us could read it and look at it. Uh, Sploinky Doinky Hole, love the name, by the way. Thank you very much for the $2. Um, really appreciate if people can give. It does help us to continue doing these, uh, these episodes and to talk about these issues and to make it easier for believing Mormons to sense that none of their faith adds up. And that all of it, if understood in its full context, would be problematic and side much more easily with the critic. So you get that whole point. And I'm just in the first freaking two paragraphs of this page. If I go read the rest of it, I'm going to find more and more and more obfuscation, more and more of them muddying the waters. Um, they do acknowledge a few things. They do talk in this uh, 1831, 1832 account. Um, it seems rather to have been an early, crudely written, but fervent effort to express church members, the prophet's religious feelings, to record the powerful spiritual impact. They don't say anything there about the discrepancies, but they do tackle it later on, right? If somebody gets far enough into this one article written in a kid's magazine, no longer available on the church website, yes, they can learn a little bit. Over here uh, on the right-hand side, um, number two here, was it one personage or two? All accounts of the first vision, but one specify that two heavenly personages appeared to young Joseph and three state that these personages exactly resembled each other. There is no doubt that the prophet intended to convey the message that they were the father and the son. What they're also not telling you is that Joseph Smith, having only seen Jesus Christ in the 1832 account, matched extremely closely with his theology that is incorporated into the Book of Mormon prior to a bunch of changes made that re uh, that adapt and reassign meaning and interpretation to the Godhead. And so the early Book of Mormon also has more of a standard uh, Christian construct of a trinity where Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost are all one being and just manifesting in different ways, whereas Mormonism at a later point in its history goes off and makes a godhead of three separate beings, the early history of the church, the early perspective of Joseph Smith, and the early Book of Mormon prior to the changes also emphasized a very Trinitarian view of God. 
And it's not until later grammatical and uh, uh, word changes are made that suggest that the Godhead is three separate beings. Gene, you're just asking, I'm sorry, you, you're obviously overwhelming uh, the chat a little bit, and you're asking about some statement. Um, I'll put it up here. Do you find the varying accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision much different than the varying accounts of Paul's first vision in the New Testament? First off, I think they are apples and oranges. I don't even believe uh, that that Paul's experience on any level is real. I have lots of problems with the New Testament. I take biblical criticism and the historical Jesus very seriously, and uh, there are lots of problems with the New Testament accounts, including Paul's. And so I know it is a, a big deal for believers to try to compare Mormonism to some facet of biblical Christianity and to say, hey, look, see, it happens there too. Well, I also believe the New Testament to be entirely myth. Uh, at the very minimum, what truth is in there about the people and the events that happened has been deeply embellished um, and whitewashed, uh, even more so than Mormonism. Let me say it this way. We know a significant amount of Mormon history was whitewashed and embellished and told in faith-promoting ways, but when uh, juxtaposed against the historical context, those issues become deeply problematic because they didn't happen the way the church said they did. Transfiguration of Brigham Young, um, uh, you know, certain healings that happened, certain uh, supernatural events that have been suggested, uh, the Sweetwater Crossing is another one. Uh, there are lots of problems. And and so that is during an age of verifiable, recordable history, and yet they were able to get away with messing up the narrative as much as they did. If I go back in the New Testament times and begin wrestling with the fact that that was not a age of verifiable history, there aren't newspapers, there aren't multiple witness accounts and constructive criticism or critical approaches to those uh, perspectives, then the New Testament gets to float by uh, entirely unquestioned and uncriticized. And I am absolutely certain that in an age where history was not verifiable and there are not multiple witnesses in the forms of journalism and other accounts, it would be highly, highly likely that the embellishments would be more significant and far more reaching than Mormonism did with its uh, restoration, we would expect to find exponentially more problems with the stories of the New Testament. So for what it's worth, uh, Gene, that's where I stand. Uh, thank you, Jerem, for the 10 bucks. Hallelujah. Back at you, brother. Uh, appreciate uh, the donation. So now I'm back to this article and, uh, you know, when they talk about the, the first vision, they go into details. They've got that number two. In the earliest narrative, Joseph Smith simply said, I was filled with the Spirit of God, and the Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord, and he spake unto me, saying, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. When relating his experience in 1835, Joseph first told one personage appearing in the pillar of fire, then another personage soon appeared like unto the first. 
The latter gave him the all-important message. The idea that the personages appeared one after the other is repeated in the New York Spectre, Spectator, sorry, New York Spectator, as well as Nebauer's diary. While the, and Nebauer might be the uh, scribe for that 1835 account. While the other narratives do not describe the event just that way, nothing in them precludes the possibility. See, th this is the kind of language that Mormonism always uses. Nothing in them precludes the possibility that he may have seen one personage first and then the other. You see, the account doesn't say that. The account says he, the, the Lord opened the heavens and he saw the Lord. It makes it very singular. But when you articulate something as to say, well, it's not prohibited. I mean, it's possible. If you read between the lines, like it's not really said there, but it doesn't exclude it either you realize the kind of fuzzy language that Mormonism is always using in order to frame these issues in the best possible light so as to manipulate you into believing when the far and wide historical evidence is that the critic is right, that these stories didn't happen the way they said, and it becomes absurd to take the church's stance. Let me put it this way. I've said this uh, before, and I got this from Spencer Wright. Spencer Wright is a brilliant uh, post-Mormon. And Spencer's written a book called How to Think, and he discusses in that book how rational thinking around supernatural ideas works. And the way it works is you have to, if you are a rational human being, first off, you can't go with feelings. Feelings are the most easily manipulated. Um, the most easily manipulated thing that you can do with a human being is to get them to feel something and to have those feelings be understood as meaning something when in reality, they could mean something completely different. So um, feelings aren't, aren't enough. And what it takes to figure this stuff out is information. And the way a rational mind works is you, you read up as much as you can on an issue. You try to understand deeply the data. And what you do then is you go, what is the most rational, logical way for this data to, what, what's the conclusion that is the most rational and logical? And the most rational, logical conclusion is the one that requires the least amount of objection, uh, I'm sorry, of conjecture and the least amount of um, allowances. And so uh, I've told the story where if I'm, you know, I'm in a cabin, I think Spencer is the first one to tell this and I'm, I'm borrowing it from him, but if I'm in a cabin, I'm staying the night in a cabin. I'm all by myself and I hear a noise on the roof and my brain tells me it could be a raccoon. My brain tells me it could be a pine cone falling off the tree. My brain tells me that it could be an alien uh, who's shown up, who wants to abduct me and take me back to his mother planet. And those three thoughts come into my head. Well, how do I figure out what's the most rational? Well, the first thing I would think is maybe it's a pine cone. That seems to be the easiest way to explain it. And that's what you're looking for. You're looking for the easiest way to explain something. And if you take the second easiest way to explain something, when you know that the easiest way is on the table, you are being irrational. But how much more irrational are you being if you take the seventh uh, most likely thing that could have happened? Well, at that point, you're being even more irrational, but irrational is still irrational. So. I think it's a pine cone. I go outside. I look at the cabin and there's no trees. 
that are over top of the the roof. There's no trees with branches extending past the roof line. And so the pine cone doesn't seem to make sense. So now I'm left with the raccoon and the alien. And if in any world I choose to take the alien without an alien actually showing up and standing in front of me and me questioning my own sanity, then I'm being irrational. I'm being, um, I'm being not objective. And I may already have a conclusion that I want to be true, but it is crucial to me that I wrestle with what is reasonable and not just what is reasonable, but what is the most reasonable? Uh, Richard, if you're going to continue trolling, buddy, you're just going to get blocked. So you're going to have to sit back and let some other people uh, conversate. And you're going to have to quit uh, just inserting yourself and repeating yourself over and over. Sorry, folks. We've got a person in the live feed who is just uh, being a little overwhelming. Uh, Richard, I would I would suggest you really tackle biblical criticism in the historical Jesus because you believe that a man was died he died and he reanimated himself after three days and the evidence you have for that would pale in comparison uh, would pale in comparison with the evidence that stands against a human being reanimating after being dead for three days. Um, Again, we're, we're going with the conclusions that are the most rational, have the least amount of conjecture, and require the least amount of allowances. All right, so back to this conversation. So um, it, it continues to go on. It talks about, you know, essentially that Joseph Smith, that this 1832 First Vision account should be permitted tons of allowances and that we don't have to exclude interpretations that are outside of what the text is, um, what the text is claiming. So there's that. I want to kind of escape this. And and Richard, by the way, is saying that he never, he didn't claim he was a believer. Richard, are you a believer? And I'll let you answer that. Uh, if you're not, great. And if you are, great. But if you just want to hang on this, well, you didn't ask me, so I'm not telling. I don't want to play that game either. All right, so moving on, I want to go back to this face-to-face -face and we can kind of uh, head towards kind of wrapping up. Um, I'm going to back up here just a little bit and uh, we can hear Elder Ballard kind of finish off some of these comments. You, in 1970, he, he, he produced a, uh, an article for the church magazines explaining all about the different versions of the first vision. How long ago was that article? 1970. That was We've back in 1970. So been hiding that for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it's this it's this 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 idea that the church is hiding something that, which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time, there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. Now we've had the Joseph Smith papers. We didn't have those where they were in our hands now. And we don't have those because even in the Camelot days where Leonard Arrington was attempting to open up the church archives and lay everything on the table, church leaders quickly moved in and silenced him 
and removed him from his position so that that could not happen. The reason we don't have transparency, such as the Joseph Smith papers, is because church leaders stopped it before it could even get started. And so we're learning more about the prophet Joseph, as wonderful we are. There's volumes of it. There's so much of it in those books now in my bookshelf. Maybe you've read them all, but I haven't got I'm a slow reader. That much. So just trust us wherever you are in the world, and you share this message with anyone else who raises the question about the church not being transparent. They say trust us. Uh, hell no. Hell no, I won't. I won't trust you. You've lied to me too many times. And again, it would take 50, 100 episodes. Go back and listen to Radio Free Mormon. Go listen to Mormon Discussion. Go check out Mormon Stories. Go see uh, Mormonism Live. Go listen to A Year in Polygamy with Lindsay Hansen Park. Go read the CES letter. Um, the church shares a faith-promoting story about itself that doesn't hold up to historical criticism. And, and then these men claim simply because of their authority, you can know from them that they're not being dishonest. But the reality is that um, anytime somebody tries to shine a light on their dishonesty, those voices tend to be removed at some point. And so then we just start over again with all the insiders and the outsiders or the outsiders and the insiders of the insiders. And it, it's always this, it's always this game. And this game is just full of obfuscation and dismissal and deflecting and whitewashing. And uh, it's insane the amount of this that Mormonism does. If, if you are a believer, if you're listening to this podcast and you go, I want to know where these guys are lying to me, you're going to have, I'm just going to warn you, you've got about the next two years cut out for you. Because you're going to have to get up every morning and listen to a podcast or read a book. And you're going to have to not read the books they want you to read. And you're going to have to not listen to the podcast they want you to, pod, to, to listen to. But you're going to go have to read uh, critics of the church. And you're going to have to see what they're saying. And you're going to have to wrestle with whether, whether the critic is more honest about the data than the apologist or the church itself. And so when Elder Ballard says to trust him, no, no damn way would I trust him. Um, he's a car salesman at heart, and his life has been one of con uh, contributing to this entity, perpetuating itself in whatever means possible, including lying for the Lord. And Elder Ballard, along with all of the other top 15 leaders all through the ages, have obfuscated and uh, deflected and dismissed and whitewashed issues since, since this church got started in 1830 and even going back further. Uh, when you talk about Joseph Smith's treasure digging and his father's alcoholism and all the other things that go into it. So for the believer, you're going to have to spend at least two years reading a ton of stuff. And maybe you get through the CES letter and you get it. You understand that it doesn't add up and enough's enough. But if you really want to know how big this rabbit hole is, I'll just tell you, I've been reading Mormon hist uh, history voraciously since I was 17 years old, and I am constantly learning new things, uh, including the second Watson letter we just discussed on Mormonism Live, the last ep uh, episode. 
And so um, these are not good men. I don't, I don't trust them. They say, trust us, no way. They're not good people. They're not good humans. How hard is it to grasp that each messy issue in its context, like how hard is it to grasp every single messy issue in this church to understand the context of that issue, to understand both sides, to wrestle with what the critic is saying, to look up the sources, to then go see what the apologist has to say, to sit with whether the apologist's uh, resolution solves the problem. And then you eventually have to get into this mind game where you go, okay, the apologist gives me a plausible answer for issue A. It's not the most reasonable answer, but it's sufficient for my comfort level. I can make it work. Um, somebody's asking what I mean by obfuscation. To obfuscate something is to make it less clear. What I think most critics of the church attempt to do is to give you both sides of the issue and let you make an informed decision. The church tells you not to trust the other side, to only trust it, and then it doesn't clearly give you all the information. That, to me, is obfuscation. Uh, just FYI. So you get to this mind game where you go, okay, so the apologist solves the Book of Abraham issue by creating a catalyst theory, and it looks the same thing as uh, the Book of Abraham being a fraud, but my comfort level is that the church is true, and I need that to hold up. So I'm going to go with the less reasonable answer to maintain my comfortable beliefs. But what you don't realize you also have to do is you have to do that same exercise on a thousand issues and not one of them, the deeply problematic ones that the critic claims, not one of them has the historical context being on the side of the church. And uh, by the way, I just want to note, I'm looking up through the comments. Uh, has Gene answered, has Gene uh, answered whether he is a believer or not? I'm just curious. Uh, somebody wants to point that out. I didn't see the comment come in. And so you realize like on the book of Abraham, book of Moses, Kinderhook plates, Joseph Smith's polygamy with women already married, Joseph Smith's polygamy with uh, young women, Joseph Smith's treasure digging, Joseph Smith's use of a seer stone. Uh, um, oh man, uh, the Kirtland Safety Society Bank, the LDS uh, Bible translation, um, you guys, you name them, take it from there. You guys in the, in the, in the YouTube live audience, keep naming them off if you want to. And so what Mormonism has done is it tries to convince you and it's apologists try to convince you, like, let's just deal with this issue, this one issue at a time. And they want you to isolate each issue in a vacuum. And what they end up doing is they end up answering each issue with a different train of thought that wouldn't work on another issue or would conflict with another issue. So it's important to them to keep them all separate. But the moment you step back and you look at the forest from the trees and you realize that on every single issue, the more rational, logical conclusion, once you understand the data in its full context, has the church being deeply dishonest and deceptive, you no longer can hold it together. 
And if anybody thinks I've got it, I can hold it together. I know these issues. I've read them. I've got answers for them. Perfect. I, Bill Real, would love to have you on the podcast and we will sit here and I will have a calm conversation, but I won't play nice like I did with Jim Bennett ever again. And I won't play nice with any of the apologists or any other person who wants to come on and share their view. I won't be mean, but I will push back as strong as the issue requires it because I'll no longer play these games. The reality is Mormonism doesn't hold up. But if you're a believer inside the system who trusts the message that outside sources aren't trustable and only your leaders in the inside curriculum is trustworthy, you will constantly and consistently be behind the eight ball, not having enough information to make an informed decision. And so while the first vision was deeply part of my forming a testimony around Mormonism, when I learned the full context of the church hiding the 1832 account, what that 1832 account claimed, juxtapose that against the theology of the Book of Mormon and the early teachings of Mormonism in that early history, then seeing the Book of Mormon change and noticing Joseph Smith's first vision account changed right with it, I eventually arrived at the place where I just understood I was being lied to, that if I looked at the 1832 account juxtaposed against the other three primary accounts and understood the theological context of the issue, I had little choice but to recognize that Mormonism, the first vision of Mormonism, um, isn't really what it, they claim it is, and that Joseph Smith almost assuredly did not see God the Father and Jesus Christ together. And, I, and then once I know all the other issues that are problematic— then it becomes so easy. Another example is that there were lots of people in the early 1800s who were claiming to see uh, Jesus Christ, who claimed to have a first vision, and whose words and articulation of that are extremely similar to the words and articulation of Joseph Smith. And so when I combined it all together, it just didn't add up anymore. It doesn't add up anymore. And while believers who are limited in their understanding of Mormon history can continue to set the critical examination aside and say, hey, I know the issues I believe, the reality is, number one, very few people can actually do that. And number two, there are a small percentage of people inside every false religion who are able to do that. And at the end of the day, the first vision, based on rational thinking, simply didn't happen. Thank you very much. Have an awesome day, everybody. And uh, I'll see all of you soon. Uh, before I close out, let me just uh, check the comments here really quick. And... Uh, uh, yeah, we can talk about a couple of these. So, Bill Real, I wonder how you differentiate faith from belief. Faith, even as Mormonism says it, it is to believe in things that cannot be seen but which are true. Um, 
you can you can claim to have faith in a flat earth, you can claim to have faith in leprechauns, you can claim to have faith in unicorns, but Mormonism imposes that the thing you have faith in has to be true. Belief is just belief. I can believe anything, and some of my beliefs are beliefs are substantiated, and some of my beliefs are not. And the secret to being a good critical thinker is to wrestle with which of your beliefs are substantiated and which aren't. And most of us, when we believe something that isn't true, we don't know it's not true. Otherwise, we wouldn't believe it. And we continue believing it because we do believe that we have enough information to make an informed decision. But the reality is you don't know what you don't know. And so you don't have a way to to add the information until you actually add it that would be sufficient enough to for you to deconstruct the belief that you hold. And so I know I'm, I'm probably rambling and using a lot of uh, articulation that maybe you'd have to go back and listen to a second time. Maybe you got it clearly. But beliefs are beliefs. Faith, according to Mormonism, is beliefs that you can't see but which are true. And the reality is the things you can't see in Mormonism are plenty. And yet if you keep believing them in spite of the data, which you also choose to either ignore or ignore the full context of, that's your choice, but it doesn't make the belief true. Um, I'm just going up through to see if there's any others. Good for you, Bill. Too often members and apologists interpret kindness for weakness. Being forceful isn't being contentious, despite the Mormon tendency to equate the two. I'm just going back up through the comments, trying to see if there's anything else that uh, seems to stand out. Matt says, I have been reading and listening to every podcast and book on Mormonism since April 19th. The lack of honesty is staggering. Call it lie for the Lord, misdirection, hide anything but upfront honesty. Um, Uh, Somebody put up the, I guess, the definition, obfuscation, the action of making something obscure, unclear, or unintelligible. Uh, You want to understand what obfuscation is? Go read the Book of Mormon Gospel topic essay. Uh, That is a clear one on obfuscation. Um, And that essentially covers it. Uh, Folks, I appreciate each of you. Thanks for tuning in. And these will be somewhat informal, but it's a great chance for me to sit down and to chat with each of you and to have a chance for you to participate. And uh, I just want to say, I I really love doing this. I I really have since I started, there's been times where I felt burned out, but I've always enjoyed bringing light, uh, bringing light to these issues and helping people have enough information that they could make informed choices. And so I'm super excited. Uh, A couple of donations, paperback writer, good name, $5 came in. Thank you very much. Uh, LC, you donated uh, the other night. Thanks again uh, for the two bucks here. Uh, It means a lot to me. Even if everybody just gave a couple of bucks, uh, it would make a world of difference. So thank you to each of you. And, uh, you know, we'll keep tackling these issues and keep explaining how I came to understand them, give you a chance to share how you understood them, talk about what data came into the picture that started to shift me and move me and change me. And then where I stand today and and where I stand today in the first vision is that it simply didn't happen. Have a great day, everybody.